You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. My guest on this season finale includes a journalist who covers curling and just about every other sport you can think of, a Briar champion who skips the fourth ranked team in the world, and a familiar guest who leads the coaching efforts at USA Curling. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. My first guest this week is Devin Haru, who has been covering curling for years now and who also covers several other Olympic sports and some of Canada's best athletes for CBC Sports. Devin, I want to start by taking you back to the uh, 2023 World Mixed Doubles Championship uh, in uh, Korea. And although they did not win a medal for Canada, how impressed were you with the fact that uh, Jen Jones always seems to be in the mix, whether she is playing with her women's team and now in mixed doubles with her husband, uh, Brett Lang, not only winning the Canadian Championship in a stacked field, but then going to the World Championship and uh, performing well enough to uh, make it to the bronze medal game where they lost against a, a tough Norwegian team. Well, I'm glad we're starting there because it just strikes me um, that Jennifer Jones might be one of this country's most fiercest athletes across all sports ever, Frank, because um, here she is out there with that same look in the eyes alongside her husband after all of this, after all she's done in the sport, all the winning she's done, the Scotties, the Olympics, world championships, um, charity events, uh, camps with kids. Now she wins a national mixed doubles championship and is out there on the ice in the same venue that she watched her husband in 2018, of course, with team Kui in South Korea uh, during the Pyeongchang Olympics now on the ice with her husband five years later at the world mixed doubles curling championship. She hates losing more than she loves winning. I think that's fair to say. Um, And just how, how much they both, cared about the event and I actually want to sort of rewind uh, about a month and a half earlier uh, in London during the briar when Brent Lang came off the ice after after that really really nice run and Jen and Brent had this embrace that I'll never forget because to me it suggested that um, they understood together that they weren't sure how much more time on the ice they had ahead of them. Listen, I wouldn't be surprised if both of them curled for a lot longer. But what I will say is, as I speak to athletes and I talk to Jennifer Jones and Brent Lang, there is a perspective of we don't take any of these moments for granted. And so it was just, I could ramble on about them for a really long time and all the winning they've done, but to see them in the Canadian colors, to see how much they cared about all of this, um, it was really special, of course. They they didn't uh, didn't get a medal losing to Norway in the bronze medal game, but they put up a hell of a fight. Uh, but Frank, the World Championship mixed double drought continues, um, but not uh, not because Jennifer Jones and Brent Lang didn't put up a heck of a fight. 
So, Devin, we were just uh, speaking about one of the more recognizable curlers on the planet in Jen Jones. And now I want to move on to Team Anderson, who won their fourth consecutive Scotties championship this season. Yet I get the sense that this team remains underappreciated by the larger Canadian curling community. Now, perhaps it would have been different had they won multiple world championships or if they had qualified for the Olympics and won an Olympic gold medal to go along with those Scotties titles. Nevertheless... Is it fair to say that Team Anderson remains well under the radar despite all their success at the Scotties? 100%. I think you've nailed it here, Frank. And I think there's a couple of things off the top of my mind that stand out about why they fly under the radar, why they're not talked about, why they're not promoted. Um, it just sort of lifted up in mainstream media. First of all, I think it it, it has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, Two of their Scotties titles came during a pandemic in the bubble when I think a lot of people really weren't paying attention, right? Like that's sort of a twilight zone in all of our lives. So I think that might be one reason for it. Um, I think another reason for it is is they're, they're so um, humble. They're sort of just their demeanor, everything about Carrie and Bell and 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 the team is just they're not flashy right they don't they don't attract a lot of immediate attention just because of the way they carry themselves i mean even when when we have carry on the show um there's just something sort of the person next door like your neighbor like somebody you would have a conversation at the coffee shop with like there's nothing grandiose and i mean that in the most sparkling and complimentary way about every one of these team members that I think sort of just allows them to go out on the ice, um, watching them evolve as a team and communicate with one another and sort of be in their own bubble. And I think they are in their own bubble in a lot of respects. And I think they have figured out what works for them. Let's also not forget that this was a team that was, I don't, I, Frank, were they were they heavily criticized? I don't know if they were criticized, but I think there were a lot of questions from people about how this all-skip team could coexist. And there were all these sort of ideas about how they should act and how they should be in the beginning. And then they just won, and they've just kept winning. And I think what they've done as a foursome how they've learned to communicate, how they've learned chemistry and sort of shut out the outside world has allowed them to sort of form this bond that is impenetrable. I think Reed coaching them is such a fantastic um, addition. Back-to-back uh, -back bronze medals, uh, convincing wins over over uh, Anna Hasselborg from Switzer, uh, from Sweden. Uh, I, was, I was about to say Switzerland because they just keep winning throughout all of this time, but you're, you, you've hit the nail on the head. They're completely underappreciated. Um, I would love to see the team take it to the next level, stand on top of the podium. I think that is in their future. Um, but everything about them is, um, is humble, not too high, not too low, um, and, and I think, quite frankly, not flashy enough to garner the attention, and I think that's a good thing. Earlier this season, Brad Gushu won his fifth Briar title as a skip, and he's clearly one of the best male curlers in Canadian history, if not the best. 
However, in the eyes of many, he's not even the best curler of this generation. You've spoken to Brad a bunch over the years, Devin. Do you think it frustrates him that despite all of his success, many curling fans, including a bunch of them in Canada, would argue that Nicholas Edine is the greatest male curler in history and not Brad Gushu? Yes, I absolutely agree with that. I think it really does bother Brad uh, a great amount. I think it's part of the reason why you saw as much emotion as you did in his post-match interview um, after losing to Bruce Moe. It was a it was a, a really really bad defeat for Guju. I can't recall any other time in my career covering Brad that I've seen such a such a, a bad effort. And, and I, I don't want to say bad. I mean, they, they gave up the two in the second end, and then they gave up the steal of two in the third end. And when you're down four, nothing against the team like uh, Team Moet and the way they were curling, you were never going to come back. So, you know, that, that was a real turning point in the game. I think what was the final score? I think it was nine to three, but I think to get to your point about does it bother Brad and sort of how the international curling community talks about Nicodine and, and Brad Guju? Yeah, I think it really does because I know that Brad Guju wants to be called the best male curler all time. He wants to be considered that. And um, it's a tough argument when you consider um, what Nicodine has done. Um, and yet many in Canada will make the argument for Gushu and many other Canadian curlers that uh, in Canada, you're lucky if you get to go to one world championship because of the quality of, of competition in the Briar and the Scotties, whereas in a place like Sweden and many other European countries, you get to go every single year to the world championship. Basically, um, you know, without any level of competition to leave your country. So many have said if Brad Guzhu got to go to 15 to 20 world championships year after year, how many might he have won at this point? To me, I find it quite remarkable that in the four world championships that Brad Guzhu has played, and remember he didn't get to go to the one in Scotland in the peak of the, of the pandemic, uh, he's made it to the championship game every single time he won his first one in 2017 an undefeated record in edmonton i was there it was the best curling of his career on the heels of his first briar win but then he's lost every championship um since then i think he'll lament the loss in vegas uh just a, a couple of years ago with some horrible ice conditions he lost in vegas of course as well to a dean so he's two losses to a dean in vegas and then uh, this one in Ottawa. He wants to be considered the best. Uh, he's got another few years, I'm going to say. <laughs> going to say he's got another few years. I think Brad will probably play until the end of this Olympic cycle. Um, th that's my sense. Uh, who knows how much longer he could go after that. His hip is giving him trouble. Um, so we'll see. But he wants to be the best so he can pad his stats over the, these next three seasons at least, Frank. Devin, in your last answer, you mentioned Bruce Mowat, uh, who led his team to their first world championship title this season. How important was Bruce's world championship victory for the LBGTQ plus community where he, where he can perhaps serve as a role model and as motivation to other young athletes in the LBGTQ plus community? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me about this because I didn't get to properly sort of write about it and talk about it on the heels of, of, of Bruce winning and becoming the first as we know it, openly gay male skip to win a, a world championship. I did tweet about it. And, and you know, to have his partner, Craig, in the crowd, and actually I, I 
had a moment with Craig on the ice. Um, for me, as an openly gay national sports reporter, uh, I get goosebumps, Frank, during Pride Month talking about this because this this matters. This matters. In fact, this visibility um, actually saves lives. We know that LGBTQ plus youth are disproportionately, uh, you know, committing suicide, uh, homeless. Um, it is it is a scary time right now to be part of the LGBTQ plus community. And so when you have stories of triumph, uh, like Bruce Mowat and his partner being there to celebrate in it, to so openly celebrate it. And then, of course, at the beginning of this month, uh, Bruce being inducted into the, the LGBT plus Hall of Fame um, at the proud Scotland Awards in Glasgow um, and the photos and, and you know, um, media headlines I've seen out of that are just so powerful uh, it is curling. Let's not forget that curling is a very niche sport in many places of the world. Uh, but in a country like Canada, where many hundreds of thousands, millions of people follow the sport, uh, when you have someone so likable as Bruce on a team so likable and so poster boyish for the game of curling, um, I think, A, they represent sort of a new wave of curlers, um, and and specifically to Bruce he has been such a trailblazer in the sport. I'm immensely proud of him. I remember those four young men making their world championship debut in Las Vegas um, in in 2018, bright-eyed, excited about what was ahead of them, um, and just an insatiable appetite to win and be better. And uh, to be there with them on the ice in that moment when they won five years after being on the ice with him in their debut and watching Bruce evolve and be so comfortable in his skin um, is, is a real career highlight for me. So thank you for the question, Frank, because it's just so crucial and so important now, maybe more than ever. Moving from uh, one great Scottish curler to another, uh, David Murdoch was recently named the new director of high performance at Curling Canada. What do you believe should be David's first area of focus in his new role? I'm going to, I'm going to answer this. Um, in a way that maybe you weren't expecting or, or curling fans listening to this, I'm not going to say a specific thing because you and I, Frank, could get into the weeds about um, a whole number of things. Um, residency, centralization, timing of the Olympic trials, um, issues around um, pregnant moms, and on and on and on. But at the heart of all of those things is listening to the athlete voice. And I think what we have seen time and time again over not only from Curling Canada, but from many other national sport organizations in this country, is just the complete lack of understanding of how important the athlete voice in the decision-making process is. And I think we've seen over the last couple of years really in focus is the athletes using their voice and their platform to hold people to account. And I think we've seen many examples of breakdowns within the curling system in this country and curling Canada, where elite curlers, grassroots curlers, have not felt heard by the top brass within curling Canada. And so when we talk about all of these decisions now on the desk, of David Murdoch, who assumes the role of the high-performance director for Curling Canada. 
It is incumbent and important and crucial upon him to listen to the athletes now more than ever. This national sport organization, Curling in Canada, is not going to thrive and is not going to evolve and is not going to get back on top of the podium in the way that so many Canadian curling fans are concerned about unless David Murdoch and the people around him in the NSO are willing to listen to the athletes. Unhappy athletes, athletes who feel they can't show up on the field of play fully as themselves, fully understood and fully heard, do not perform at their best of their potential. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. So listen to the athletes. That should be the top priority of David Murdoch. It's going to be interesting to me how he navigates the bureaucracy of Curling Canada because it is bureaucratic. Um, and and there is an, a way of doing things that's been unspoken but passed along for years. I think this sort of high-performance review has led us to believe and David Murdoch to believe that there is this general air and atmosphere of wanting to be open to change. When the rubber hits the road, though, when you actually have to do it, do they actually take action? That's what I'm going to be paying most attention to. I found this most recent in April um, announcement sort of with wild cards and pre-qualified teams and Murdoch saying that this new system uh, is, is basically for the teams to allow them to, to stop chasing points and all of these things to qualify for events. I'm going to be interesting to see over this next sort of year how much David Murdoch continues to walk his own path and listen to the athletes and how much he gets pulled into the orbit of Curling Canada. That's what I would urge Curling fans to pay attention to. Speaking of listening to the athletes, Devin, uh, one area of concern last season, at least from a Canadian perspective, is that elite curlers in the prime or even at the beginning of their careers are stepping away from the sport to pursue, quote-unquote, other passions. Now, I'm thinking of Colin Hodgson, who was so eloquent in sharing why he was stepping away from the sport, and then the even more troubling example of Mackenzie Zacharias stepping away from the sport fresh off of a Scotty's final appearance and just a few short years removed from winning a World Junior Championship so that she could pursue, quote-unquote, other passions. The sport of curling has lost some good young curlers for a long time because the pathway to uh, uh, the elite level in the sport is time-consuming, it's very expensive, and as happens in all sports, there's no guarantees. How concerned are you, or how concerned should the Canadian curling community as a whole be about losing young curlers such as Colin Hodgson and Mackenzie Zacharias, among others? Yeah, and can I throw in the name Jacques Gauthier um, in this same sort of conversation? Because what's also worrisome for me is another great young skip is leaving to join Kevin Cooey, right? So in my mind, in my mind, Frank, that's a situation where Jacques could have been out there, could have learned a lot of lessons, could have formed a team, and is going to play for Kevin Cooey. I'm not going to speak for for Jacques because I don't know his story. I don't know what went on in the background. But, But what I will say is, when we look at young athletes, I don't know, again, with Mackenzie Zacharias, I think that was alarming because to pursue other passions, I mean, I don't know about you, Frank, but the last time I checked, 
Mackenzie Zacharias was pretty passionate about curling. So, you know, and then, and then Colin Hodgson, yeah, uh, leaving, you know, early thirties, right? Like this, this is, this is worrisome. I think it speaks again to the, the unhealthy nature of the sport in the country. Um, This is a conversation I've been having for years. I mean, the professionalization of curling just squeezed out any potential for young curlers to develop. Um, you talk, you know, about this next cycle, we're probably going to lose a lot of the, the names and faces we've been so used to seeing. And who's coming up in their wake? I don't know. I'm really concerned about the health of the men's and women's game in this country because we are not investing in the next gen. We are not promoting healthy practices to keep people in the sport. Um, resources in this country continue to be divvied up among the top four or five teams of both genders. Are they getting to where they need to be? I think we've lost the plot so much on winning now versus winning in the future. And we've, we've sacrificed so many young, great curlers for that. And, and, and I think in a lot of ways, they are victims of the system in Canada. They are victims of owning the podium. And uh, it's heartbreaking to me that you can be, you know, in your mid-20s, early 20s, even early 30s, and, and leaving the sport for other passions, for other reasons. Um, because to me, Frank, more than anything, it feels like there isn't any joy or any fun or any communal experiences in curling. For for me, that's what it was about when I fell in love with the sport in 1998 because it was Sandra Schmirler and her team from Saskatchewan, which represented friendship, sisterhood, community, felt like you knew them. And that was the vibe. That is why people went to curling clubs. Why the hell are people going to curling clubs anymore? It feels like the only reason you go to a curling club is to win. And if you can't win, why are you there? And I think that's what a lot of the young teams who are trying to push through are grappling with. Well, if we're not going to be invited to bond spiels, if we're not going to be funded, we can't survive. And that's why so many of these curlers are falling off the map. I think it's tragic. I'm concerned about the future of the sport in the country. And I think um, these these young athletes are the canary in the coal mine, which basically should tell us we are in trouble. All right, Devin, let's step away from curling for a little bit. Uh, You get to cover curling and several other sports for CBC Sports in an era where it seems like everyone and their cousin has their own podcast or blog. In curling alone, when I started my podcast eight years ago, there was only two or three curling podcasts. Last time I counted, there were uh, we were up to 13. How difficult is it for you to be heard above all the noise, even when supported by a media outlet as large as the CBC? That's a really good question. Where do I even begin to answer that? How is the audience consuming news today is maybe where I would start and how I would break down that question. And um, I want to believe, um, Frank, that that through my presence, specifically on Twitter, which, you know, obviously at the CBC, we sort of took a pause and, and grappled with what our future on that platform was going to look like. But 
I guess maybe I want to believe that people have come to understand that if there is a Canadian amateur sports story I'm hope, of significance that hopefully I'm going to be covering it. And so I hope, you know, they're either going to, to my Twitter feed because I'm always posting on there my links to my stories and whatnot. Um, we have a vast reach uh, to audiences at the CBC, whether it be CBC Radio or um, our, our broadcast platforms as well. I don't know if this directly answers your question, but I guess I'm maybe in an interesting spot in my career where I am trying to maybe evolve in the way I share stories. I think maybe um, early in my career, I was sort of hell-bent on making sure that people knew that I worked hard, that I was a person of, of integrity. And I guess you're sort of trying to build reputation as a trusted sports reporter and perhaps there was ego involved in that to try and persevere and, as you say, carve out space in a very um, littered and polluted space. And I think sort of my life experiences, the conversations I have with athletes all the time has sort of moved me away from being really sort of focused on making sure people know me and know my work and make it about my brand and more so about the strength of the stories that I tell and capturing the essence of the people um, that I get to spend time with. And I think for me, great work is always going to be found. It's going to be shared. It's going to be consumed. So I think in this chapter of my career, I'm less concerned about running in circles, making sure my face and voice is everywhere and trying to amplify the voices of the unheard, trying to amplify the voices of, of really compelling stories. And I guess in a way that has allowed me to be a little less stressed and a little less anxious because I'm less concerned about what people think about me and how I'm showing up in the space. Cause I'm pretty clear about that in my life now and more so about doing great work, exemplary, exemplary work that, um, that stands out. That's how I'll answer that question. From a scheduling perspective, uh, Devin, how much of your weekly schedule at CBC is planned far ahead of time, and how often are curveballs thrown into those plans because of a developing story? Wow. Um, I can tell you what July 23rd, 2023 is, uh, where I'm going to be, what time I'm going to be. I can tell you uh, with great precision because I know I'm going to Fukuoka to cover the World Aquatics Championships in Japan, and uh, I spend weeks and weeks and weeks mapping out, you know, every time trial and things like that. I try and know exactly when every diamond league, whenever swim meet, whatever's going on, I map out on a Sunday night. So I have a pretty good idea of what my week is going to look like. And then there's breaking news. And, you know, I, I half jokingly always said in, in the line of work that is being a journalist who wants to be plugged in, it has to be a lifestyle. And so every week I am throwing a curveball. There's no question. Um, and the problem with me, and I say problem sort of cheeky, is that I can't let a good story pass me by. And so if there's breaking news and it's my day off, for example, Monday and Tuesdays are supposed to be my days off these days because I'm covering so much on the weekend. Good luck uh, trying to keep me uh, from coming out of the bullpen or coming off the bench on a day off when there's a great story. So I have great flexibility in my life at the CBC, um, and yet I'm working all of the time. So it's a bit of a trade-off, 
I've always said if I have enough time to have a, a couple of cu- cups or buckets or cereal bowls of coffee in the morning, I'm a happy camper. That's all really what I need. Um, but scheduling is a thing. I have a really great group of people around me to sort of reel me back in when I get on a roll. But I also love um, being on the roller coaster of an event. And my next one is leaving July 9th and returning early August. And as I said, being at the World Aquatics Championships in Japan, which will be absolutely riveting one year out from the Paris Olympics. And I will say this on the record on your show. I believe that Canada is a summer sporting nation. As much as I love my winter sports, Frank, and you know that better than anyone, I believe that we are globally recognized as a powerhouse in sports that are globally recognized and that the the demographic, um, the diverse nature of this country has changed and that this might be the Olympic cycle where Canada wins more summer Olympic medals than winter Olympic medals. And finally, Devin, I know that you cover Canadian athletes from many different sports. Can you share the names of a few Canadian athletes that might still be off the radar for most casual Canadian sports fans that you believe might become household names during the 2024 Olympics in Paris, France? Let's just talk about Summer McIntosh, because anytime I get to speak of the 16-year-old, who's, of course, training in Sarasota, but originally from uh, Etobicoke, I jump at the opportunity. So I believe that um, Summer McIntosh is going to do things that no other Canadian athlete has ever done at an Olympics. Uh, She is a a once-in-a-generation athlete. She broke two world records at the Canadian trials uh, at the end of March and beginning of April. Uh, It's fully expected that uh, in Fukuoka, Japan, in July, she'll compete in five individual events and probably two or three of the relays. Um, And then by the the time the plane goes out in Paris, uh, 2024 will be summer's Olympics. You, You better believe I'll say that a few times on the air. There is a Canadian hammer thrower by the name of Cameron Rogers. Can- Canada, uh, Frank, I don't have to tell you this, hasn't always been that great at the field events in track and field. But we have, uh, I'll talk about two of them, actually. Sarah Mitten is a fiery uh, shop putter from Brooklyn, Nova Scotia. And Cameron Rogers is out of the West Coast and uh, is just on a tear. She broke her own Canadian record twice over the last couple of weekends. Um, just a brilliant story. Her mom, Sherry Rogers, I've gotten to know well, a single mom who raised Cameron, um, just an outstanding person, incredible athlete. So watch for Sarah Mitten and Cameron Rogers, who I expect to be on the podium um, in track and field. Trying to think about the... Um, the other athletes that I've been talking to, I think uh, divers, uh, the synchro duo of um, Rylan Wees and Nathan Somber Murray, um, I had a chance to catch up with them. They're just coming off the Summer Canadian Championships. These guys are hungry for a medal. I think uh, they have the opportunity to do that. They're inseparable. I think they're 21 and 20 years old. They ro- they're roommates on the road. And I think Canadians are going to get to know them really, really well. Um, so I, and I don't think, you know, many Canadians um, know, di- you know, again, diving is a pretty niche sport. So watch out for that dynamic duo. What obvious underdogs am I? I think yeah yeah I mean this I'm I'm covering a lot of swimming and a lot of 
uh, athletics, uh, Frank, because that's kind of what I have my eye on right now. But I have a feature coming out about the great middle distance runner, Marco Arope out of Edmonton, 800-meter uh, runner, uh, wants to be the fastest man ever to run the race. I was down in Mississippi and Starkville with him for a few days, getting to see his life there and how he sort of goes about his business. I don't think a lot of people know Marco. Of course, he won a bronze medal at the World Championship in Eugene, Oregon last year, just the second Canadian man ever to win a medal in that distance. I really believe you're going to see great things from him. So that's actually kind of a nice mix of people who I think Canadians are going to know from uh, Nathan and Rylan in diving and summer in the pool and then uh, Marco Cameron and uh, and Sarah. Keep an eye on them because uh, they're people that I expect to do great things. And then the Taekwondo family, the Park family. I've got to mention them as I finish. Skylar, Teku, and Braven Park, three siblings, uh, part of a family of 16 black belts, and their dream is to all be competing in Taekwondo for Canada in Paris. I believe they can do it. What a gift, Frank. They still pay me to go spend time to watch sports and catch up with their athletes, and I don't take it for granted. My second guest this week is 2021 Briar champion Brendan Botcher, who joined me to discuss what was an interesting first year for him and his new team of Mark Kennedy, Brett Gallant, and Ben Hebert. Brendan, the story that I've heard is that the seeds of the current Team Botcher lineup were sown by Ben Hebert and Brett Gallant, who wanted to play together this cycle, and then started looking for a third, and they skipped to play with. On the one hand, joining a group like this is easy, because each one is an Olympic medalist, and they have all won multiple briars, so the pedigree is tough to match. However, as established as you are now as an elite curler, this was honestly your first go-around at joining a quote-unquote super team. I'm sure there was excitement, but I'm also wondering if there was a little bit of trepidation on your part, as this would be a relatively new experience for you, joining a team, a brand new team, filled with uh, players that are essentially elite and superstars at their own positions, compared to your last lineup, which grew into a super team, but was fairly unproven when you first all got together. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean... I was I was part of a team, part of a program for for so many years. I was really proud of the way we did it. You know, I was uh, playing with a lot of <laughs> real close friends. We we had a pile of success together over really a couple decades. Um, it, it is a little bit scary, you know, stepping out of that you know comfortable path and and trying to do something a little bit new. But you know, just the once I saw kind of what the what the team could be. Uh, once I once I figured out who was all going to be a part of it, um, I was just so excited for the opportunity to join these guys. Um, I, I really saw not only their experience, but it really felt like we were checking a lot of the boxes with with all the guys we had on the group. Um, and and I was excited for a little bit of a new challenge personally. Your team added Paul Webster as your coach uh, to start this cycle. Uh, what were the initial conversations like with Paul? Did he lay out conditions for you guys from the outset so that his role would be clearly established? Or did he sign on with the idea that he would observe you for the first part of the season to establish what this group of players and personalities needed from a coach? You know, I really think we built Paul's role together. Um and I would say personally, you know, we brought four players from four different elite teams and we brought in a coach, an elite coach, um, 
who, who hadn't been team coaching in the past. So all five of us were coming from five different worlds, frankly. Um, and we had to get together and figure out what it was we needed, <laughs> where some of the gaps were, um, how Paul could help us, uh, you know, to, to the most value and his fullest potential. And, and that took a little bit of runtime. So I think we spent a little bit of the time through the fall figuring out what that could look like. Um, and then really arming Paul with, uh, you know, these are the tangible things we want you to focus on. And him also looking and saying, okay, I've watched, you know, a critical mass number of games um, of you guys now. And these are some of the tendencies I'm seeing. These are some of the gaps I'm seeing. Um, so I think as the year evolved, we we all came together, including with Paul, um, and kind of created that cohesive unit. Nowadays, uh, Brendan, we often hear of uh, businesses and even teams in different sports essentially reverse engineering their way from their ultimate goal to plan out a period of time. So I'm wondering if you and uh, the team basically reverse engineered the cycle, starting with identifying your ultimate goal, which I'm assuming is winning Olympic gold, and then working your way back from there and creating a plan that will allow you to build towards that ultimate goal. Well, you know, we we definitely formed the team with some pretty some pretty lofty goals. Um, and I think, um, you know, starting with those and working backwards, we, we, we did try and figure out what that would have to look like, you know, how can we build up to being that super successful team? And, And I think an important part of that was not wanting to short circuit, uh, you know, all the time we put into practice and all the energy we put into growing together, you know, not just trying to be as good as we can in that exact moment today, year one of the quad, but how do we focus our energy to continue that development, trying to be better for tomorrow? So I I think this year, um, especially I'd say the first half of this year, we spent a lot of energy in, in a practice environment. We spent a lot of energy trying to figure out where we can move the yardsticks as a team of, you know, super successful individuals coming together. How can we, how can we become more than we were personally and as a team? How can we build that together? And that takes a little bit of vision to what the what the future is, but it also takes a little bit of patience. Um, you know, there, I think there were some teams that came into this year either as mostly unchanged from the previous quad or with a strong, you know, focus on winning right now. Um, that, that was a little bit different mindset we had. Now, Brendan, it's one thing to know players from having competed against them and perhaps having been around them in social settings, uh, but you don't really get to truly know the makeup of a team until you win and, more importantly, lose together. At what point during the season did you truly get a sense that you knew what each of your teammates needed from you during a game, whether that was communications, uh, where uh, where to place the broom, what to say to them between shots, you know, was there a aha moment during the year for you or did it uh, basically build throughout the season? Uh, I would say that grew throughout the season. I can't really put my finger on one, you know, turning point or light bulb moment. Um, I, I will say, though, you you don't know guys truly in, until you play with them. So, uh, you know, you, you have a vision or a view of, guys when you play against them you know I've played against these guys for a decade um hundreds of times I <laughs> I've played against all these guys and and you think you know who they are and what makes them tick um 
but until you play together, you, you, you don't quite know all, all the intricacies there. And, and I say that in the most positive way possible. You know, I, I think the first half of the season, even I'd say the first season altogether, um, there was so much learning just about each other and, and what we each needed to be successful. There, there's really no question that all four of us can be elite, can be best in the world at our positions. Um, and that's kind of the refreshing part that there's that there's no question there. The, the challenge is how do we unlock that? How do we, you know, get the most out of everyone? And most importantly, get them, get more out of all of us together than, you know, each of us individually could bring to the team. Devin, when building towards an ultimate goal, it often gets difficult to, to celebrate the smaller vi- uh, victories or smaller milestones along the way. Teams will often focus on things they must improve, even after winning an event or after an important win in the game. Did your team make a conscious effort this season to enjoy the victories, the positive milestones, even though there may have been some areas of disappointment during any given week or during a game that you have won that you may have won against one of your big rivals? So absolutely. Um, celebrating success is one of the most important parts of the the puzzle. And it really comes back to why are we doing this? <laughs> you, you know, we're, we're doing this to, to stand on those podiums, to have those big moments, to really relish in the success that we're able to, to obtain together. Um, so it is really important to, to, not, to not get too into the weeds on there's always something you need to be fixing. There's always something you need to be tweaking. You know, the day you stop trying to get better is really the day you should retire in our sport. Um, but w- when you win, that that feels good, and you got to celebrate that together, and you got to build that team chemistry and that dynamic together. Um, and that culture that you build is so important. Um, so I, I can think of events this year where – we didn't do well, even a couple of those events where we didn't qualify. Um, and at the end of the week, I can look back and say, well, you know, here's, we did a lot of positive things this week. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> we're playing the best teams in the world, didn't have the outcome we wanted. And that sucks. However, um, there, there were a lot of positives I can take from that. So you, you got to play the other side of that too. You know, there's weeks that aren't a success where you could get, very into the weeds on we need wholesale changes we need to do these big and grand things to win next week um and that's not helpful either so as much as you need to celebrate the success when you're winning you also have to find the positives when when you're not getting there and uh, of course you have to keep your eye focused on um that development that continuous learning i, I think that's a, a role where paul uh, has a big impact on our team is that he can kind of keep that in our in our windshield. You know, win or lose this week, what are the things we were trying to do, and, and how did we do? Uh, and and sometimes that has nothing to do with the outcome. So earlier this year, Curling Canada announced that two of the wildcard teams for the 2024 Briar would go to the top two teams in the CTRS rankings at the end of the 2022-23 season, the season that just ended. Yours is one of those teams. Does being pre-qualified for the Briar change the way your team is planning your schedule for next season? Um, So yes, um, and I'll start by saying that I was a huge proponent of that change you know, even back in the fall when we when we necessarily wouldn't have been one of those teams, 
Um, I, I think it's great for our um, elite teams here for this quad. I think it'll be a real good data point of whether or not this is a successful formula for us to implement moving forward. Um, but what it allows is it allows for better periodization and better training and development for your top, top teams to go into that briar not only focused on winning the briar, but focused on if and when you win the briar, how are you going to be most successful at the Worlds? Because I think where where we've lost a little bit of vision is in Canada, we spend so much energy trying to beat each other. <laughs> and we spend a ton of energy in the fall on this massive points race because we got to get into all of the big events. And then we spend a bunch of energy trying to figure out how to win provincials in January, February. So I, I, I'd use our team as an example. The last couple of years, you know, we were a team that regardless how we did at provincials, we were going to be at the briar um, just because of how the wild card math worked out. But you're going into provincials. You know, I spent my, my life as, as a kid dreaming about winning provincials. You, you always go into that event trying to win. And in trying to win, you prepare super hard, which is exactly what you should be doing. But, you know, you go through that grind, preparing really hard, trying to peak per, for provincials, trying to win the provincials, and then you hit repeat on that one month later for the briar. You go in, you train really hard, you you go there, you, really, that's the big one. That's the big show. You got to try and win. So you got to be playing your best. And then for the team that wins, they have to go around turn around and do that again one month later. And, and if you look at um, kind of periodization and how often you can peak in your performance, um, that kind of one month cycle uh, simply isn't getting the most out of our top athletes. And if you compare that to what some of the international teams do, where they can you know, some of them do obviously have a national championship, but many of them start their season focused on how to perform at the world championship, full stop. And that completely changes how they approach the season. It changes how hard they play. It changes how hard they practice, when they practice. It changes so much about how they can plan their season and they can put a vast chunk of their energy on how do we win the world championships? How do we get on the podium? And when you think about how we're doing it in Canada and you try and figure out how much of our energy we spend truly on winning the, the world championship, you know, we spend the vast majority of our energy just trying to beat each other. <laughs> so it, I think often for the team that does come through that process, does win the Scotties and the Briar, they're almost running on fumes into the world championship. They're almost trying to figure out, okay, how do we just keep it going? How do we keep the keep the ball rolling? How do we, you know, not drop off and try and have our best performance at the Worlds as possible? And I think this, you know, change in approach might allow for a li little bit different mindset. Um, and hopefully it will better prepare our teams to get on the podium at the world level. Everything you just said made a bunch of sense, Brendan. But I want to play devil's advocate for a moment because countless times since I started the podcast eight years ago, I've heard elite world championship level curlers tell me how important it was for them to wear the provincial colors or crest at a Briar or Scotties. How do you reconcile supporting this new approach to wildcards by Curling Canada 
when it means that teams such as yours might not play in a provincial for the remainder of this cycle and not get a chance to wear the blue and gold at the Briar. So I'm, uh, I can see both sides of this coin. And, and I would say personally, um, you know, wearing the Alberta crest, wearing the blue and gold means something. Um, it means something to me because that's what I was striving for throughout my whole curling career, including all the way back to as a junior juvenile curler. I was dreaming about being able to wear that Alberta crest and those colors. Um, so that tradition aspect of it is important. That is a lot of the secret sauce and the magic that is our Briar in the Scotties Tournament of Hearts that you can't, it's not tangible. You can't put your finger on it, but there's a reason why it it means so much. And part of that goes back to the, the long history and the tradition of it all. Um, but you know what feels even better than wearing the Alberta colors and wearing the Alberta crest is wearing the Canada colors and wearing the Canada crest and being able to go to a world championship and know that that you're prepared and you're ready and your goal for a large chunk of the season has been how to get on the podium at that world championship. Um, And that, that's something you also can't put your finger on. It's a whole other level of tradition and history and and that's not only important for the athletes going there, but it's incredibly important for our program as a whole. You know, curling in Canada is largely funded by the success we have at international events, whether those are world championships or the Olympics. Whether we can get athletes and teams onto the podium is critically important to fund curling in Canada, period. And I think that's something we always don't put enough focus on is that this vast history, this this broad sport that we've rolled out with this cross Canada kind of buy-in is, is a sport we all love. Um, but we do need to find a way to get our elite teams and our elite athletes onto the podium more often. That, that just has to happen. Um, so am I willing to try something new? Absolutely. Um, I personally don't think this does take away from the provinces and from the provincial championships. I think you're actually going to see, in some cases, a resurgence in those provincial championships. And I'll, I'll use an example. You know, the, the years where Brad has won out in Newfoundland and they get to host provincials without Brad, <laughs> you, you know, you're certainly losing one of the best teams in the world, this huge marketing value that this one team can bring to an event, but your registration doubles or triples sometimes, you know, the amount of athletes and the amount of teams that now see a path where, gosh, if we train hard this year and, and we have a good week at provincials, we can make a briar. So you see this broad, um, growth in enrollment and entries into the provincial championships. I actually think it brings a lot of life to them. And the other thing I want to touch on is in this new format, largely the teams at provincials are the only, everyone's on their last life, their last chance at the provincials. So when you get down to that provincial semifinal, that provincial final, it's going to mean a lot more. I, I look back at this year Um, And, you know, I I talked about how hard we trained, how much we wanted to win provincials, even though it really didn't matter that much. Um, You know, we were playing a provincial final on Sunday, 
And both teams knew before the game started that we were going. And and you look at that, and, and I had some people, some friends and family, not go to that. It was in Edmonton. But, you know, some people didn't go because, you know, well, the result's already predetermined. Like, who's wearing what color at the Briar is, uh, you know, not that important to those fans. Um, we we want to see that sudden death game on Sunday where it's all out there on the ice. Everyone's battling for their last chance to get to the Briar. You know, that's kind of the history of our sport, too. And playing a game where both teams know before you start that you're going, you know, some people could throw their hands up and say, what value does that bring? So I see kind of all sides of this one. And finally, Brendan, at this point, I'm sure you've had the chance to have a a conversation or two with Curling Canada's new director of high performance, David Murdoch. What are a couple of the key areas that you'd like to see David address in his first year or two in his new role? I am very, uh, very happy with Curling Canada's decision. Um, I, I think Dave was just an outstanding hire. I think we needed a fresh perspective more than anything else. I think we needed someone with a little bit of outside vision of of what elite curling looks like outside of our little Canadian ecosystem. Um, And I think Dave brings that in spades. Um, I don't think it was ever a question of, do we have the knowledge in Canada? Do we have the right people? We just needed something different. And that's sometimes a little bit hard to put your finger on. But on top of that kind of different perspective, you know, Dave was an uh, elite curler. He was also an uh, elite high performance of a program that was highly successful in the last couple quads. So to leverage that knowledge he has in how, in truly how do we get our elite athletes onto the podium, um, I think is is invaluable. And I think he, you know, given some time, will be able to move the needle in that column um and and i think he will he will run a a structured program i think he will hold the athletes accountable and ultimately i think he'll be able to 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 get more of us back onto the podium which i think is the goal for all of us My final guest this season is a From the Hack regular. Phil Drobnik of USA Curling joined me to discuss an up-and-down season for several high-performance program teams, culminating on a high note with a gold medal performance by Corey Thesey and Corey Dropkin in the World Mixed Doubles Championship. Coach Phil, we haven't had you on the podcast since uh, before the 2023 World Mixed Doubles Championships, which were a big success for Team USA as uh, Corey Thesey and Corey Dropkin came home with a gold medal. Quite an accomplishment by the two Corys. Yeah, we're we're now in the process of petitioning the WCF to host every event in South Korea because uh, we've had had successes there. But um, it was a fantastic week for uh, for Corey and Corey. Um, they 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 had a great uh, mixed doubles national championship, and they were able to carry that forward and really um, come out and really get better as the week went along. And, um, you know, Corey, uh, a lot of people have said that mixed doubles was really set up for Corey Dropkin. And, uh, you know, they're, they're right. I mean, in particular, he's a fantastic sweeper. Um, he loves the fast pace, fast pace game. And then, you know, you can't say enough about Corey TC and her ability to just make shots like she, um, you know, she was a pretty high percentage throughout the throughout the round robin. 
Um, I think she was second or third. She finished uh, in in the rankings just behind um, Jen Dodds. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the playoffs, she was in the 90s most every game and just made every first shot of every end, which really, if if you can make that first shot in mixed doubles, it really sets you up for for the for the rest of the end and um they were uh you know they took the they took the tough route in having to come through the the quarters the semis and the finals and not only did they take the tough route but they had to beat scotland and canada um to get to the championship game to then take on japan so just uh, a great week and and great play by those two and um, was really excited for for both of them who've been playing for a long time and and worked hard for a long time and you know they've kind of they've grown through the system together they played juniors together they both went to their first junior worlds um, in in 2012 in Sweden together and and here they were 11 years later able to uh, get on top of the world podium and and get their gold medal together so um, pretty cool experience for them and and for for USA curling to uh, get our first mixed doubles gold uh medal and uh join um sweden what i think it's sweden switzerland and scotland as the four countries who uh have now uh can claim titles in all all three uh olympic disciplines so phil how do you take this world title by cc and dropkin and use it as a springboard to help grow the mixed doubles discipline in the u.s well, I think we got off to a good start with it. Um, you know, Corey and Corey are passionate about mixed doubles and um, are partnering partnering with USA Curling to have the uh, to host really the first major um, uh, U twenty one mixed doubles uh, curling championships. USA Curling announced it earlier this week um, that it'll be in Duluth, uh, Corey and Corey's home club, and it'll be over uh, the U.S. Thanksgiving weekend this season, this next upcoming season. And, um, you know, it'll be, uh, an event that's, um, you know, ho- hosted by Corey and Corey and, um, you know, supported by USA curling, Duluth curling club and other sponsors. And I think that's a great start because this is going to be an opportunity for, you know, anyone under the age of 21 to get some excitement around it. You know, Corey and Corey will be around there to have world champions running the event and hosting the event, I think is, a uh, is a great thing, and it just helped grow the sport among our young curlers. Speaking of Corey Dropkin, uh, Coach, uh, let's move on to the men's side of things. Uh, Team Dropkin went into the season with high expectations, but it was a a tale of two halves, if you will, for the team, as they played well to start the season, but then stalled in the U.S. Championship where they failed to reach the final. You know, I think they they reached a lot of goals that they wanted to reach um, in terms of, uh, you know, they started the season off at 19, 19 um, ranked in the world and they got themselves inside the top 10, um, which was a goal of theirs to get inside the top 10 and become a consistent slam team um, for their first season together. So, you know, that was a goal that they reached. Um, They knew they were going to be in the tier two slam. They wanted to go out and win that tier two slam again. Um, They were able to do that and, and, you know, build on those successes. They had, um, they got, they had a semifinal finish in a slam, um and then you know so so in the beginning of the season they did a lot of things really well and um you know a bronze medal at the uh at the pan continentals um you know and ended up beating gushu at the pan continentals in the round robin but didn't get to face them in the in the gold medal game um so a lot of good things happened in the beginning of the season you know for the first half of the season second half of the season uh, was a bit of a struggle for them 
um, just in terms of, you know, running into the, to the national championship and, you know, they weren't real comfortable with the ice conditions and, you know, the back end um, struggled a bit just with, with that and being able to capitalize on some opportunities. And, you know, they, they, um, I think they finished fourth in the round robin and, and ended up uh, losing the semifinal game to uh, Danny Casper. So, um, you know, definitely a disappointing a disappointing national championship. You know, they went in the top ranked U.S. team and um, went in as as a favored uh, for the event and weren't able to capitalize. This is, you know, I know those guys were really bummed about that. And but, you know, really taking that opportunity to learn from it. And, um, you know, they've got to figure out how they can win the U.S. Nationals uh, and how to beat John really is what it comes down to. And, um, you know, John is going to be around uh, through 2026 and they've got to find a way to beat him. So um, it's uh, it's a forever uh, learning curve for them. And it's early in the quad. And, you know, they they've got the offseason to figure it out and what they need to change and what they need to do differently um, to be able to take what they did the first half of the season and carry that forward to the second half. You were just mentioning Team Schuster, who uh, seemed to have taken a bit of a different approach to the start of the new cycle. They uh, traveled to Arizona, British Columbia, Scotland, and Japan for regular tour events, and team members each seemed to take some time off during the season to rest up uh, for the second half, if you will. The team played well, won three events, including the U.S. Championship, but was the plan for the season to have this veteran team essentially work their way into this new quad at a more relaxed pace? Yeah, it was definitely the plan for them, you know, to, to be able to take some some quality time off, to be able to um, ease into the season. You know, they were able to have some 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 good results, winning Ben Tickton, uh, winning the Nationals, um, qualifying in a number of, of events that they played in, especially in the second half of the season. Their first half was a bit of a, a slow start, but um, really picked it up the second half of the season. You know, and then unfortunately, um, you know, the, a disappointing finish for them at Nationals. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a tough week for them and a good, but a good learning lesson as well for them just as to, you know, um, how to be better prepared, how to get, to get better results. And, you know, they, they didn't play in any slams until the end of the season this year. So, um, which we know that slams are the best preparation for, for, um, for world championships, just for that international ice conditions. And, um, you know, they got caught up a little bit on, on the swingy ice at the, at the world championships. So, um, you know, there, I look for them to be, uh, to wanting to be become a slam team and to be more familiarized with the slams next season. And, uh, you know, they started with it, you know, going into the champions cup and, you know, they're currently sitting at 13 in the, in the world team rankings. So, you know, being able to stay within that top 15 to, to be consistently in the slams will be a, will be a goal of theirs and something that they're really pushing for and setting up their season next year. On the women's side, uh, Team Peterson may not have traveled uh, to as many different countries as Team Schuster did uh, during the season, but they did play a fairly busy schedule uh, consisting mostly of major events. Uh, was the goal uh, during the season to get them to play as many events as possible to get them into those big events like the slams from the get-go in this new cycle? Well, they did wait to start the season. Um, they didn't start until uh, uh, mid-September. So they didn't, at least, they did take that time in August to really 
um, to recoup and, and, uh, you know, made a conscious effort to start, to start kind of at towards the middle to end of, I think their first event was the U S open in, uh, like the third or third weekend in September. But, um, you know, from there, you know, once, as I, as mentioned, um, with team Dropkin, like their goal was really to be, you know, be a slam team consistently throughout the year. And if you want to be a slam team consistently throughout the year, you've got to be, playing in enough events to earn points to be able to do that and to be able to hold your spot in the top 15. So um, that is uh, that's, that's a huge piece of it. And um, so, you know, it was, it was a very well thought out process of which events they wanted to play in and, you know, where they could earn the right points to become a slam team. And that's kind of what, what it's all about nowadays. And, um, you know, they've, they finished this season inside the top 10, which, you know, was a, um, with with solid finishes at the Players Championship and and the Champions Cup, um, so I, you know I think they feel pretty good about the season and where they're at, and you know obviously would like to build upon their their World Championship. They 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 felt like uh, you know they played better than where they finished, and you know stats would show that Corey TC was the number one ranked third, and uh, Tab was the third ranked skip, and and they, they finished seventh. So they know that there's a lot more left out there and um, that they have a lot of opportunity there in the, at, the, at the World Championships. In an interview we did earlier this season, uh, Phil, uh, you stated that you expected the three U.S. women's teams to be in the top 20 of the world rankings at some point in the next couple of seasons. This included Team Peterson, of course, but also the team skipped by Delaney Strauss and Sarah Anderson. Now, Team Peterson is clearly a top 20 team, and top 10, in fact, at the moment. Where are Team Strauss and Team Anderson on their progression towards what they hope is a spot in the top 20? Yeah, I'm really happy with the way they uh, progressed this year. Um, Team Straussen, uh start with them, and you know they were they came from I think maybe like 70th uh, and jumped themselves up to uh, to the top 30. I think they're currently like 29th in the in the world team rankings. And um, you know uh, when you look at their season as a whole, they qualified in all their events but one, and um, and they played in the world university games and finished uh, um, and, and, you know, had that bronze medal finish there and got a silver medal at the women's women's nationals, almost upending tab in both the one two game and the, and the championship game. So, um, you know, uh, very happy with the way team Strauss uh, progressed this year. Um, you know, this next season will be that, uh, you know, uh, trying to avoid that sophomore slump. And, uh, you know, they had a great freshman year of, of moving up from juniors. And, you know, I see this as their freshman year and they're in the top 30. So how do they find a way to get into that top 20? You know, really that first goal of getting into that tier two slam and then kind of building as the season goes along and, you know, hoping to get yourself inside that top 20 by the end of the season. So, um you know, they're going to play some some tougher competitions and some, you know, make sure they're getting more reps against top teams to get more comfortable with that. And, uh, you know, but yet also, you know, having that happy medium of a schedule where you play some events where you should go and win them and then play some events where, you know, you want to be playing the top teams. Their Their biggest struggle last year was they qualified for a lot of events, qualified for the playoffs in a lot of events, and then um, got upended in the semis or the quarters and um, didn't really win an actual event, world, a world tour event next, last year. So I think that's really their goal is to be able to also win a tour event. And then when we look at 
Um, Sarah Anderson is their first year together as a team. Sarah's first year skipping Taylor's first year playing uh, vice. Um, and, you know, I, I thought it went really well about, uh, about uh, October. They brought on Earl Morris to coach them. Um, it was a big help for that team and just helping to set up the structure and helping Sarah develop as a skip. They were able to get themselves. I think they're right around the top 30 as well, 31 or 32. And they only played six events last year, really were thoughtful on the events that they played and are really next this year, looking to, to bump that up and move themselves into the top 22. So we have two motivated teams that are there pushing tab. And, um, you know, like I said, uh, the goal is to get three teams in the top 20 and really get Sarah uh, Sarah Anderson's team and Delaney Strauss's team pushing tab to become better. And, um, you know, when we have the trials in 2025, um, November of 2025, we have three teams that are really vying for that, uh, for that opportunity to represent the U.S. at the Olympics in 2026. Phil, when you and I spoke uh, mid-season, USA Curling was going through some difficult times, uh, much more in the boardroom than on the ice. At that time, you told me that the athletes in the high-performance program were fairly well insulated from the off-ice drama at USA Curling, allowing them to focus on uh, their performance and on the, the sporting side of it, if you will. How difficult was it for you and the remainder of the coaching staff to keep the players as insulated as possible from the drama with so much going on at that time? Yeah, it was certainly a, a challenging time with uh, for USA Curling, and um, you know, as coaches, as the coaching staff, um, you know, we uh, as I mentioned, then we really wanted to keep everybody focused on on competing on the ice and 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 practicing and try to keep the distractions to a minimum. But you know, the reality is, people do have social media, people do read social media, and um, you know, there was a big divide that was created. Um, now, uh, you know, and the, and, and the, our, our former CEO put us in a, in a very real tough position. So, um, you know, uh, hats off to Dean Gamble for, for jumping in and taking on that leadership role um, as, a, as the interim director and our in, interim uh, um, CEO and really helping to, to put USA Curling, um, start moving USA Curling forward to start bringing um, the curling community down here in the U.S. together and and mending a lot of the um, a lot of the bridges that were that were uh, um, destroyed along the way. So um, and then you know fortunately here uh, not too long ago Dean was named um, CEO of USA Curling. So you know we finally have a, we have a leader in place. Um, and we have a board with you know the, the with direction for us, and I think we're in a great spot as as uh, and we've 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 learned a lot as a as an organization. Um, you know the board was really supportive of of everyone within all the athletes and, and coaches, and um, you know we we've got to uh, continue to to be better and, and get better, and um, just thankful that uh, we we do have leadership in place uh, like Dean who can can unify all the curlers across the country and and really rally everyone behind our national team and and our athletes that no matter if it's uh the wheelchair team the mixed team the mixed doubles team world's teams that are going to represent our country and uh have the whole country you know rally behind them and supporting them and just supporting usa curling and finally, Coach, I don't think I've ever asked this question on the podcast before. At the end of each cycle, we keep hearing about players moving on from one team and forming other teams for the next cycle. It's usually a busy time with a bunch of speculation by media and by curling fans on social media. 
I'm just curious if there is also an active market for coaches at the end of the cycle. Uh, do coaches like yourself get feelers sent the, their way at the end of the cycle to gauge your interest at different opportunities? Yeah, there's always offers that are that are thrown out. Um, you know, I've I'm I've even dating back to like 2018 after we won the gold, and um, you know, I've made it pretty clear that. Um, where my heart is i've been with usa curling for a long time and um got great relationships with our athletes that that have been built and uh, i want nothing more to, than to see usa curling succeed at at every level of um at every level of play and you know uh having lived here now now having moved from from northern minnesota there's just twin cities and being able to be on the ice um with our athletes uh, and spend spend time with our athletes during the week. And then, you know, at events on the weekend, I, I, I really enjoy where I'm at and love where I'm doing. So, uh, you know, I, we don't have to worry about an announcement from, from me going anywhere soon. Before signing off for the season, I wanted to share with you that there will be some changes in the format on the From the Hack podcast starting in September of next season. Please keep an eye on the From the Hack social media accounts for more details in the coming weeks. And that does it for this week's episode and for From the Hacks coverage of the 2022-23 curling season. A huge thank you to Devin Haru, Brendan Botcher, and Phil Drobnik for joining me this week and to all of our other guests this season. More than anything, I want to thank all of our listeners who have stood by our podcast, some of you, for eight plus seasons. I would also encourage you to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, the Rock Logic podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.